0: Good morning, church. It's uh, so uh, good to be back uh, with you in the pulpit. I'm so grateful to Pastor John for inviting me um, to be in the pulpit. It is such a joy and honor. I I love this church, and uh, I love uh, being a part of it, and I love uh, you folks as well. It's also a joy because today is Confirmation Sunday and uh, one of the the milestones of our young people and and truly uh, one of my favorite Sundays in the year. Uh, 17 of our young people have been meeting with Kevin, our youth pastor, exploring the faith, learn what it, what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And today, they have said yes to Jesus, and they are taking their place among you as a part of the community faith here at Anderson Hills. But it's even a greater joy for me because uh, one of the 17 is my granddaughter, uh, Nola. And 14 years ago, not that long ago, her parents brought her to the baptismal font and made a promise that they would teach her the scriptures, that they would model for her the Christian life and help her to make a commitment of faith for herself. And you made a promise as well as you did even today that you would surround them with a community of love and care. And help them to come to that point where they make a decision to follow Jesus. And of course, not just Noah's parents did that, but all of these parents made the same promise. And now these 17 young people have made that declaration, that public declaration of their faith in Jesus. I love this, I love those kids. Well, we have been talking this Lent about surrender, which is perfect for this day because surrender is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Our scripture for today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, and you have heard this story many times before, I am sure, but I want to read it to you again. Let's hear God's word. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, And love your neighbor as yourself. Well, all of these things I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, sad. Because he had great wealth. So, this rich young ruler has this encounter with Jesus. Actually, Mark's gospel tells us that he was rich, Luke tells us that he was a ruler, and Matthew tells us that he was young. And so this young man has it all. He has youth, he has power, he has wealth and influence. He's probably one of Palestine's most eligible bachelors, a garage full of of expensive cars, a a closet full of the best tailored suits, and and a penthouse in Jerusalem, And he comes to Jesus. Mark's gospel says that he ran to Jesus and knelt before him. This tells us a couple of things. First of all, he was enthusiastic. He was eager to to learn from Jesus. He was not going to let this opportunity, this chance of a lifetime go by. Secondly, it tells us that he was sincere. There were so many who were not who only came to Jesus to trick him into saying something that could be used against him. But this young man recognized in Jesus someone with authority, somebody with the answer, somebody deserving his respect. And whatever answer Jesus gives him, he's going to seriously consider this so kneeling before Jesus, he, he asks a question, perhaps that has been on his heart a long time, a, a question that has evaded an easy answer. And he says, teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? Isn't that interesting? He's thinking that eternal life is what? Uh, it's a reward for doing something good. But I wonder why he even asked this question. I mean, he has it all, doesn't he? He, He's young. He has lots of time before he dies. Why does he worry about eternal things now at this age? And he has money and he has power. So he doesn't really need God. But here he is asking a question of ultimate meaning and destiny. And I wonder why, don't you? Is he hungry for something more? Is there emptiness inside? Has he discovered that his, his wealth and his power and his, and his influence, his achievements have not really satisfied him deep inside? I wonder if there was a, a restless discontent. And Jesus says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he replies, well, which ones? Uh, There are 10 of them, not that many, but I guess he wants Jesus to narrow it down to the essential ones, and so Jesus names the commandments, five through nine, and then he adds Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Can you mute this for a second? I'm going to cough, and I don't want to blow anybody's ears out. <coughs> so the rich young ruler, he's thinking, yeah, I, I've, I've done that. I, I've kept those commandments all my life, and I, I have to tell you, I still don't feel close to God. I've, I've gone to church. I've obeyed my parents. I've not murdered anybody. I've not lied. I've not cheated. I've been a good person all my life, but I'm still not sure why. Why? So he says that lie. He says, I've done all these things. I've kept the commandments. What do I still lack? It's a good question. And probably all of us here today at some point in our life have asked that question. What do I still lack? Jesus looks deep into his heart, and in a moment he identifies the problem. He says, if you wish to be perfect. If you wish to to reach this goal of yours, he says, sell your possessions, give the money uh, to the poor, and, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. But this is not the answer the rich young ruler was looking for. He was hoping for some kind of spiritual insight, not a complete reorientation of his entire life. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not a call To poverty. This is a call to discipleship. It's a call to discipleship. Jesus looks into the man's heart and he sees that his great wealth was first in his life. Jesus, the great physician, saw the deep-seated and acute trouble and he prescribes this radical surgery. Cut it out. Get rid of whatever is first in your heart. He has to cast aside all other dependencies and in radical trust, surrender that which he trusts in the most, which is what? It's his wealth and his own moral goodness. But he can't do it. All he can see is what he would lose not what he would gain, because his entire life has been defined by wealth and power and he cannot accept a new definition of himself as a man rich before God of having treasure in heaven and he will not pay the price. He's interested in spiritual things, yes, but not enough, not enough to put it first. And he says no to Jesus' invitation to follow the Bible says that he walked away and it begs the question doesn't it for all of us (laughs) what are we holding on to a little too tightly or better yet what is holding on to you Well, let's go on with the story and see where it takes us. After he walks away from Jesus, Jesus makes a comment. He says, truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some commentators try to soften this a little and say that the eye of a needle was actually at a low gate in Jerusalem. That so required a camel to unload its baggage before coming in. But no such gate has ever been found. In fact, it was a fairly common saying, kind of like us saying something like, you know, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. It was just something that people said all the time. In fact, in, in, in Persia, where elephants were common, they would say, it's hard for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. And so Jesus meant it exactly the way he said it. It's hard to be saved if you're rich. St. Augustine, the fourth century uh, bishop, uh, said this. He said, it's hard to be saved if we have wealth. He says, it's impossible if we love it. You hear the difference? And the disciples hear this, and they are shocked. Jesus, who in the world then can be saved? You see, they had this basic assumption that wealth meant a blessed life. If you're wealthy, it means God's favor is upon you. After all, Psalm 1 says, Happy are those who delight in the law of the Lord, and all they do, they prosper. They thought that prosperity, financial success, was a sign of God's favor. And the disciples would have been in agreement with most everyone else in the world. Even Jesus' enemies would have agreed with that. But Jesus is about to turn their assumptions upside down. And he looks at them and he says, For mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. So what's the point? Jesus is saying there's only one way to be saved, and that's by the grace of God. Isn't it interesting that the people who had life all figured out struggled the most with Jesus? It was the moral people. It was the religious people. It was the rich and powerful people. It was the people who were losers. It was the down and out. It was the non-religious. It was the sinners who were most open to Jesus. And maybe it's because it was easier for them to surrender. Maybe the cost wasn't or isn't as high for them. You see, full surrender is expected from everybody who wants to follow Jesus. But in our own human nature, to want to do that on our own, we want to do that on our own terms. Lord, I'll let you have this, and Lord, I'll let you have that. But just let me hang on to this. And I bet you know what that thing is that you're hanging on to, right? But God wants everything. Let's look at another story found in Matthew 4.18. Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, and two other uh, friends, James and John, Uh, They're casting their nets into the sea because they were fishermen. Now, Now, this was not a fishing vacation. This was their career. It was their business. It was their vocation. It was how they fed their families. And for James and John, it was the family business because the Bible tells us they were fishing with their father, Zebedee. In fact, it was the bottom line. It was their social security. It was their identity. It was everything that our careers are to us. And Jesus comes along one day, and he interrupts. Jesus has a way of interrupting our lives. Amen? Yeah. And he says to them with complete authority, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. Now, this is a little unusual, because usually it was the students who chose their rabbi, not the rabbi choosing his students. Still, it's not surprising That Jesus would call them to follow. What is surprising is what happened next. They dropped their nets. They left their careers. And they followed immediately. The gospel writers use that word immediately. Now how do you explain that? I mean put yourself... In a similar situation, you're at work, you're at the office, you're in the shop, you're in the classroom, you're at home with the kids, and and somebody you don't know very well, uh, maybe only by reputation, and maybe you've only seen this person in the local news, walks up to you, and without hardly even saying, hi, my name is Jesus, says, hey, come on, follow me. Be one of my groupies. Would you do it? I mean, honestly, would you do it? Would you give your boss notice? Would you clean out your desk and just walk away? Would you do it? These guys do. Luke's version of this story tells us that Jesus did a miracle first, that he, he filled their nets with fish, and then he, he called them. So maybe there was a little longer courtship, but as far as we know from the biblical record, he just offered them this challenge, and they said yes. And I'll tell you, every time I read this passage, it gives me chills, because they said yes, and the rest is history. They left behind the safety and the security for a huge risk but with the possibility of changing the world. Listen again to verse 22. It says, immediately they left the boat and they left their father and they followed him. They even left family. Does that scare you? It does me. Do we have to leave everything? Maybe yes, maybe no. But for them it did. Because, you see, as long as Peter and and John, Andrew, and James hung on to their nets, they were going nowhere with Jesus. Before they could follow Christ, for them, they had to drop their nets. And that may be true for some of us. Anything that inhibits or prohibits my non-negotiated commitment to follow him, maybe it's things Maybe having been absorbed into a culture that celebrates the worth and value of things. We tend to think that if we stack up, that if we accumulate more, that it increases our sense of significance. And maybe you have a tight grip on some of your things and you don't want to let go. Or maybe it's people. People. Maybe it's somebody that you like, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and you like hanging around this person, and yet you know that if you get serious about being a follower of Jesus, your values and principles are going to distance you from this person, and you don't want to kick them out of your life, and so you hang on. I had a man in church one day call me and asked to talk over coffee. And he told me of a difficult issue that he was struggling with. He had a, a relationship with a woman that he really liked. He even thought someday they might get married. But there were some other issues in the relationship that bothered him that went against some of the core values that he held. And they tried to talk about it, but they were not able to come to any kind of a, of a solution, any kind of, of an answer. And so he made the decision to break up. And that's hard to do. Maybe it's your plans. Growing up, I thought I was going to join the family law uh, practice with my father and, and grandfather. In, in college, I, I gave my life to Christ, and I thought, well, no problem. I'll, I'll be a Christian lawyer. There's not that many of them. <laughs> but not long after that, I, I apologize, in the attorneys in the... Um, But not long after that, I felt a call to ministry, and I struggled with that. I didn't want to let go, and I hung on because saying yes to ministry meant saying no to my plans and no to my dad's plans. But finally I made my decision and my dad's law school had built a new law building and dad had made a a financial contribution. He took me up for the dedication and he introduced me to the dean, hoping that kind of might smooth the way, you know, for me to get into law school. And on the way home, uh, he asked me the question, he said, Mark, is this where you'd like to go to law school? And I said, Dad, I think I'm going to become a pastor Man, it was a long drive home. (laughs) So hard to let go of my plans. Hard to disappoint family. But God had different plans for my life, and he had better plans. So have you ever considered that? That maybe that thing that you're holding on to that you don't want to let go, that maybe God has something better in mind for you? Listen to what Jesus says at the end of our story. Verse verse 29, he says this, he says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. What are you holding on to? What do you not want to surrender What do you need to let go of? And why would any of the things you're holding on to be of more value than eternal life? There's one more thing we need to consider. Luke 14, 26. It's kind of a a follow-up from what Jesus just said. And he says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross, listen, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Wow. Those are hard, hard words. What does he mean? What does cross mean? What does he mean that we have to deny ourselves and pick up our cross? Well, what what did the cross mean to Jesus? For Jesus, the cross meant pain. It meant giving up the glories of of heaven. It meant displacing himself and descending into our fallen world. It meant becoming one of us and, and walking in our shoes for 33 years all of the way to an instrument of ancient, cruel torture, dying in disrespect, misunderstood, rejected by his culture, and finally being abandoned by his closest friends. That's what the cross meant to Jesus. So what does it mean to us? It means that in my life, I have to have a willing disposition to bear discomfort for the faith. In essence, my focus begins to shift from me And from what I want to Jesus and what he wants for my life. And maybe it's the discomfort of displacement in the marketplace. Maybe it's, it's displacement geographically. I don't know what it is for you. But you see, a lot of us will pick up the cross and we'll say, yeah, I'll be a follower of Jesus. I'll leave everything to follow. And if it means some discomfort, well, I'll, I'll do that. And you pick up the cross and you start following him. And then suddenly uh, things get uncomfortable and it will be tempting for you. It will be tempting to want to go back to the old way of life. Every single one of us here today either has, is, or will experience that challenge. I guarantee you. The disciples tried to go back to their old way of life. John's gospel tells us that, uh, several days after the resurrection that some of the disciples decided ju- to leave the tumult of Jerusalem for the more peaceful homes in the Sea of Galilee. They are, you might say, in between jobs. They're no longer disciples, but they're not yet quite apostles. And so they do what any man worth his salt would do. They, do you remember? They go fishing. And uh, Peter says, hey, guys, you want to go back on the lake and do some fishing? And they're like, yeah, let's go. All night long, they're fishing. And guess what? They don't catch anything, do they? These guys really made the right decision to give up fishing (laughs) because they weren't that good. And I'd be the same way. They're coming back into shore, and they're in a bad mood because they haven't caught anything. And as they're coming back to shore, some guy on the beach yells out, hey, you didn't catch anything, did you? And they're thinking, some wise guy, where do I get back to shore? I'm going to have words with him. They get a little bit closer. And who is the wise guy? It's Jesus. And he's grilling some fish on the beach. And he says, come and have breakfast. And after breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? He says, yeah, Lord. You know I do. And then feed my lambs. Three times he says that. And then at the end, he says once more to Peter, Peter, follow me. There it is. From the very beginning to the very end of the Gospels is the call to follow. To let go. Of anything and everything that has its grip upon you. To let it go. It's the call to follow. It's the call to surrender everything. You can't go back. Because once Jesus calls you, your life is forever changed. Every single day, I have to surrender my life to Jesus. It's not a one-time thing. It never ends. I want to close up with a a video of uh, Sarah Putman, uh, Mark and Marge's daughter, about her decision to
1: follow Jesus. Let's listen. I was a homebody, didn't go to camp, had no desire, like missionary, not even on the list. So I went to Cedarville, and my junior year there, I was studying to become a teacher. My junior year, we were at a missions um, chapel, she passed out these commitment cards and said, if you're willing to tell God, you will go wherever he calls and wants you to sign this card. And it was so fast. I was like, this is for me. And so I signed the card and I put it in the basket and I left chapel that day, just positive. God was going to call me to be hot, hungry, tired, and miserable for the rest of my life. Surrender in that moment was obedience and I trust you, but I don't feel good about this." And then in God's faithfulness, he did nothing with it for four years. And so I started teaching um, at Miami Valley Christian Academy in Newtown. An opportunity came to go to Romania with a team for the summer. God was like, I want you to go. And I said, all right, cool. Once in a lifetime opportunity. And I met a little boy who at the time was three and has Down syndrome and I just fell in love with him started sponsoring him, came back, and then it was just like what I did for four years. I taught during this um, school year, came here in the summer. I was like, God, you're brilliant. Like, obviously, this is what you meant when you called me a serial, right? In February of 2013, he was like, hey, we're done teaching. And I said, come again? <laughs> like, this is what I've been, this is, what I've, this is the only thing I've ever wanted to do. And he was like, no, we're done. And it was one of those moments I was like, I'm positive this is God, so okay, let's see what happens. Stopped teaching in 2013 and just started discerning like what's next. I knew that I wanted to do counseling and I wanted to do it in Romania. The opportunity to come to Cluj in 2016 arose. My first night here, the pastor of the church here said, like was just vision casting for us and said that it was his dream to start a counseling center in conjunction with the church. And I was like, oh, I see you Jesus. Finished my degree in 2018 and then moved here in 19. That process took 10 years, Like, and God was just so faithful to ready me, because if he had told me at Cedarville that I was moving to Romania, I would still be hiding under a rock. Just that like one step at a time, like, okay, I surrender, do whatever you want. And then it was not like suddenly my life was different. It was this process of like, okay, one step at a time, each step you can surrender a little more, and then now I'm here. You know, things like, I don't have a nine-to-five job. Um, and it's surrendering that, like, life doesn't have to look like what I expected it to look like. So have had to surrender to, like, funding. And, and you know, I'm here on support. And what did that look like? And how was I going to find the money? to Like, who wanted to invest in me? Watching God show up and just be like, um, all right, that took four months. This daily surrender of, like, okay, Lord, I don't know. The same thing with the war. Like, okay, Lord, I don't know. I very much feel like this is where I want to be. This is where I need to be. There's been affirmation and being able to cross the border and come back that like, yes, God is still saying, this is where I want you to be. Um, But it still comes with the unknown and it still comes with, um, feelings that don't necessarily match the surrender. I think for me, surrender has always been a choice, regardless of how I feel about it. Oftentimes, then my feelings catch up.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. A lot of wisdom in that video, but you hear what she said, surrender is is obedience, and it's a daily decision to follow, to let go of those things that have a hold on you, and to surrender them to Jesus. So let me just end by asking that question, what are you holding on to? What do you need to let go of? Are you willing to trust that Jesus has great plans for your life, no matter where you are, at the beginning or near the end? Are you ready to do that? We've had 17 of our young people publicly say they're ready to follow Jesus. What about you? Are you ready? Let's pray about it. Lord, as the old hymn says, uh, we surrender all. All to Jesus, we surrender. Lord, help us to let go of those things that hold us back, that keep us down. Those things, Lord, that we think have great value, but they really don't. Only you, God, and the life that you offer has true value. And so come. Come and melt. Come and change our hearts. Help our wills, O God, to align with your will. We give you everything in Jesus' name. Amen.